Good afternoon. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Merciful God, who did send thy messengers, the prophets, to preach repentance and prepare the way for our salvation, give us grace to heed their warnings and forsake our sins, that we may greet with joy the coming of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, welcome back. We are in, for those of you who may be joining us for the first time, in Acts chapter 5 today. I say Acts chapter 5 because that's a natural break uh, here in the Acts narrative, but actually we're going to begin at Acts chapter 4, verse 32, and lead into chapter 5. Um, One of the things you have to remember uh, about all of the Bible, and particularly the New Testament books, is that what we have in terms of chapter divisions, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, etc., these were divisions that were not in the original manuscripts. I think most of you probably know that already. Uh, They were put in at a later time, uh, particularly during the Middle Ages, um, by the monks who were copying these manuscripts to make it easier for us to follow. Not only easier for us to follow, but easier for us to memorize. The scriptures were meant to be memorized. You have to remember that uh, before a written culture, much of this was an oral tradition. And so even for those that did have manuscripts, uh, they were memorizing the scriptures and this made it easier for them to do so. But those chapter divisions, while they are helpful, they are from time to time somewhat arbitrary. And I think that's the case here. So in order to understand what's going to happen in chapter 5, verse 1, you really have to back up and look at what's happening in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 and following. That's the lead-in to chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Acts chapter 4, verse 32, and we'll start there today. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Uh, This is simply a repeat of what we saw in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 44, that they were all together and uh, they dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers, and everyone had everything in common. And we talked about what that that meant when we took a look at Acts chapter 2. So this is a repeat. This is, uh, again, a further description of what was happening in the church, of how they were all together in heart and mind. And verse 33, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means a son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. That's the background of what's going to happen in Acts chapter 5. In particular, this part about Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, who sells this piece of property and brings the proceeds and gives it to the church there in Jerusalem. I think it's no mistake that Luke is emphasizing to us who this man was and where he came from. When he says that he was a Levite, he meant that he was from that class that assisted in the temple. When he tells us that he was from Cyprus, he's telling us that he is, to borrow a phrase from the peninsula, from off. He is not from Jerusalem. Now, he is living in Jerusalem at the time He is worshiping with the church in Jerusalem, but he's not from there. He is from Cyprus. But what's impressive is that he is evidently a propertied man. He is an affluent man. He is selling his property, and he is giving the proceeds to the relief of the brethren in Jerusalem. Now, this may not seem like a big deal to us, but you have to understand that this was a huge deal in the first century. Um, people were divided along all kinds of lines in the first century, far more so than we are today. We may think that our culture and our society is divided to some degree between haves and have-nots, between races and so forth, but in the first century, this was particularly so. 
Uh, Jews had nothing to do with Gentiles, um, and even among the Gentiles there was a great deal of prejudice. Um, the Greeks had a tendency to look down on the Romans. <laughs> uh, the Romans had a tendency to look down on the Greeks. The Greeks saw the Romans as rather boorish. The Romans saw the Greeks as sort of has-beens, and the Jews pretty much looked down on everybody. And even within Judaism, there was this conflict between those who were from Jerusalem, which was the holy city, and those who were from other places. And yet what we see happening here in the church is that all of those, and Paul describes them in Ephesians chapter 2, as dividing walls of hostility, because of Christ and because of the gospel, those dividing walls of hostility are coming down. That's very significant. And so we see this man who is from off, a native of Cyprus, selling a field that belonged to him and bringing the money and laying it at the apostles' feet. And as a consequence of that, they change his name to Barnabas, which means a son of encouragement. That's what Luke is telling us. It's based upon his generosity that they are saying this man is an encourager. How many times in our lives do we need encouragement? Any of you feel like you need a little bit of encouragement today? Sometimes, especially at this time of the year, we feel as though we need encouragement. And we'd love to have somebody like Joseph Barnabas around. And so he was an encourager, and the church praised him for his generosity. Well, that's the lead-in to what we see happening here in chapter 5, verse 1. But a man, see there's the but, uh, there's the transition, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And, which his, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, I encourage you to use your imagination. Now, don't just read the words. Try to picture in your mind's eye what is happening here in this story. Uh, I think I've told you before, I always imagine Ananias and Sapphira sort of sitting over there in the pew behind the pillar. And... Um, they see this man Barnabas getting all of this attention because he sold a piece of property and the church is praising him and they're changing his name and they're calling him a son of encouragement and they get a little irritated by that. You know, there are times when other Christians can be irritating. Did you ever notice that? One of my favorite, favorite cartoons I saw, um, it, it used to appear in the old Anglican Digest. I don't know if you ever read that. But it showed two old ladies sitting in the back of the church. And, you know, classic picture. They're wearing the plumed hats and, you know, the gloves. And they're, they're sitting back there in their mink coats. And one turns to the other and she says, Who is this Gloria Patry anyway? And why is her name always in the bulletin? There's that sense of jealousy, you see, that just sometimes exists in the life of the church. And, and that's what I imagine when I think of Ananias and Sapphira. They're, they're sitting there and they're jealous of this man. He's getting all of this attention. So they come up with a plan. And the plan that they have is that they are going to sell a piece of land that they have. Now, when I imagine it, and of course the text doesn't say here, this is Miller's sanctified version, um, but... I imagine that they sold this piece of property and it turns out to be worth more than they anticipated. And so what do they do? We're told that they kept back for themselves some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Verse 3, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. I think that's one of the greatest understatements in all of Scripture. I'm sure that they were filled with fear. And the young men rose up and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Verse 7, And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. 
But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Yeah, nobody else wanted to uh, contribute to the church's coffers. Or if they did, I'm sure it was a very effective stewardship campaign. <laughs> what could we say about this passage? Well, I think the first thing that strikes many people is the extreme punishment that was meted out on this husband and wife. Um, the most ancient law code in all of history, written law code that we have, is the Code of Hammurabi. Um, it was a Babylonian law code. It dates to 1754 B.C. And uh, it is a rather lengthy code over 200 different laws and restrictions. And the significance of the Code of Hammurabi is that these punishments and these crimes are all scaled. Uh, one of them uh, has to do with an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, what we call lex talionis. It's this idea that whatever the crime is, the punishment ought to fit it. Uh, that's one of the things that makes the Code of Hammurabi so remarkable. Um, and many of our laws today, British common law, even American law, is built upon this whole notion that the punishment should fit the crime. So in other words, if you go into the Harris Teeter and you steal one of those grapes and you eat it, that is stealing, uh, but you're probably not going to get the death sentence for it. The punishment should what? Fit the crime. And one of the things that so disturbs many people is that when they read through this story of Ananias and Sapphira, it's true they lied to the apostles, but all of a sudden they're struck dead. And that seems like a little extreme to us, doesn't it? It doesn't seem as though the punishment is actually fitting the crime. So what's going on here? Well, this is not the only example of this happening. Uh, there are other examples of something similar happening. If you keep your finger there in the book of Acts, we're going to flip back uh, just momentarily uh, to the Old Testament, to the book of Leviticus. Uh, easy book to find, uh, even if you're not familiar with the scriptures. Genesis is the first book of the Bible, of course. Exodus is the second book, and Leviticus is the third. So go to Genesis and turn right. Leviticus chapter 10. Now let me just say, as you're turning there, why all of this is significant. And why I think that Luke includes the story of Ananias and Sapphira in his narrative. It's because up to this point, we have been studying the church. And we've said that one of the things that is important about the book of Acts is to realize that Acts is not simply a record of past events. It's not just a history of the early church. It is that, but it is more than that. We said that the book of Acts is really a blueprint for ministry today. One of the things that we talked about when we first started to study Acts was the fact that you and I, living in a 21st century, post-Christian, post-modern culture, are living in a world that is remarkably similar to the one that Peter and Paul ministered in a pre-Christian skeptical society. And so they nevertheless managed to go into their culture and proclaim a gospel that transformed it. And you and I are sitting here today as a consequence of that. And so one of the things that we can do is study the book of Acts and learn how they did that, how they went into that Greco-Roman culture, took the gospel and transformed it and brought the nations to their knees. Because the same thing needs to happen in our day and age. So the book of Acts is a blueprint for ministry. It is not simply a record of past events. It is an example of the church and how the church ought to operate today. And we have seen that this has been a model church in so many respects. The church was growing. It was growing exponentially. It went from 120 believers to 3,120 believers. And then after Peter preached his second sermon, thousands more joined the church. So we're up to about 5,120 people. The church is growing 
It's doing well. We're told that nobody had any need. They sold their property. They distributed the, the proceeds to anyone as they had need. And the Lord did what? He added to their number daily those who were being saved. So it's a marvelous picture of the early church. But I think that Luke includes this story here in Acts chapter 5, not simply because it happened, but because it was also a solemn reminder to us all that there is no such thing as a perfect church. It may be a remarkable church. It may be a church that God is using in a powerful way, but there is no such thing as a perfect church. And do you know why? Because there's no such thing as perfect people. I think I probably told you one of my favorite stories about Charles Haddon Spurgeon, great preacher in London in the 19th century. He used to preach and thousands literally would come out to hear him. He was an anointed preacher. Even um, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, Benjamin Disraeli, who was not even a Christian, he was Jewish, would nevertheless come to hear Spurgeon preach. He was just a remarkable man. And he had a voice like a trumpet. I mean, he could preach to thousands of people in a day before there was any kind of amplification. But the story goes that on one occasion, Spurgeon was standing in a receiving line, and people were coming out the church, and a couple came up to him, and they said, Mr. Spurgeon, over the years, we have been greatly blessed by your preaching and by your ministry, but we've got to tell you, we have decided to leave this church. And he asked them why, and they said, well, we have come to realize that not everybody here is perfect, and so we're going off looking for a, a more perfect church. And Spurgeon, who had a tendency to be a little bolder than many preachers are today, looked them right in the eye and he said, well, do me a favor, when you find this church, whatever you do, don't join it. And they said, why? He said, because if you join it, you'll ruin it. If you find the perfect church and you join it, you'll ruin it. Well, here in Acts chapter 5, what we see is a remarkable church, an extraordinary church, a church that God is using, but it is not a perfect church. For every church where there's a Peter and there's a Paul, there's an Ananias and a Sapphira. So if you're church hopping and you're going around and you're looking for the perfect church, good luck. As the old country western song says, you're looking for love in all the wrong places. Well, that was the case here. Well, go back again, as I said, to the Old Testament, to the book of Leviticus, and you'll see an example of what I'm talking about. Leviticus chapter 10. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. Uh, if you know anything about the Old Testament codes when it came to worship, they were very specific. God laid it out in very minute detail, precisely how he wanted the priests to act, what they were supposed to say, what they were supposed to do, and precisely how they were supposed to do it. And we are told here that they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. That is, they were doing something that they were not authorized to do. And not necessarily anything that was wrong in the sense that it was heretical, but it was what? Unauthorized. That is, it was contravening God's law. What he had laid down is what he desired. So they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Now, again, you look at this and you say, well, pretty extreme, isn't it? Now, the other two references, one is in 2 Samuel, one is in 1 Chronicles. You can take a look at those uh, in your own time. Um, but they tell the story of the priests and the Levites carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And um, one of the oxen, which is pulling the cart that has the Ark on it, stumbles. And it looks as though the Ark might tip. Now, God had given strict instructions. Nobody was to touch the Ark of the Covenant because it represented the law of God. And one of the things that we've talked about in other classes here at St. Philip's is the fact that of all the adjectives that are used to describe God in the Bible, which one is used more than any other? Holy. There are a lot of adjectives used to describe God. We talk about God's mercy, His love, His graciousness. 
But of all the adjectives that are used in Scripture to describe God, the one that is used more than any other is holy. God is holy. And not just H-O-L-Y, but W-H-O-L-L-Y. He is wholly other. He is in a category all his own. I think you've heard me say this before if you've been in the class on the Sermon on the Mount, that oftentimes when we think of holiness, we only think in terms of morality. And, and so we have this idea that there is this scale of holiness. And down here at the bottom, you've got the devil. And up here at the top, you've got God. And everybody else sort of falls somewhere along that scale. You know. Now, most of us hope that we're in the upper half, especially because most of us think that God grades on the curve. That, that, that's what we're thinking. And the closer you get to God, the better your chances of getting into heaven. That's, that's the way many people think. So right down here on the bottom, you've got the devil. And then, you know, you've got right down there, just, just above the devil, you've got people like Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler and those kinds of wicked and evil people. And then you sort of work your way up the scale. And uh, up there toward the top, close to God, uh, you have people like Mother Teresa and Billy Graham. And I always like to say the clergy of St. Philip's, they're just way up there at the top. And, and everybody else is somewhere along that scale, and that's what we think. But that's not what the Scripture teaches at all. God is not even on the scale. He's in a category all His own. He's nothing like us in that respect. And so this emphasis upon the holiness of God was something that was drilled into the people in the Old Testament and everything that God taught in terms of how they worshipped, in terms of all of their traditions, all of that was designed to impress upon them that God is in a wholly different category. And one of the ways that he was impressing on this, this message on them was by the admonition that they were not to touch the Ark of the Covenant under any circumstances. It represented his holiness, his otherness. Do not touch it. Well, what if? Don't touch it. And we're told that one of the oxen stumbled and there was the fear that the ark was going to roll off the cart and one of the men reached out and touched it. And he was struck dead. Now we say, what? it was going to stumble. What did God say? Don't touch it. What if, under any circumstances, don't touch it. Now they could use poles to pick it up. But a human hand was not to touch it. When God gave the law on Mount Sinai, we're told that they were to cordon off the entire area. And even if an animal placed its hoof on the mountain of God, the animal was to be stoned. Don't touch it. So a message is being imparted here. It's very clear parameters. We see that way back in the book of Genesis. You may eat of any tree in the garden, but don't eat of this tree. But what if? Don't eat of that tree. But if you eat of the tree, what happens? You die. That is a perfect understanding, my friends, of sin. What is it to sin? To sin is to do anything that God forbids. And it is a failure to do anything that God commands. That's what sin is, pure and simple. It is doing anything that God forbids, and it's failing to do anything that God commands. We call those sins of commission and sins of omission. So there are clear parameters here, and there are no extenuating circumstances. There are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. So we may look at this and we may say, well, my goodness, these seem like extreme punishments for trivial offenses. But that is not necessarily the case. Um, one of the other things you have to keep in mind here is the point at which this event takes place in the life of the church. The church is just getting started, isn't it? I mean, sort of, it's touch and go at this point, at least from a human point of view. There's no guarantee that this Christian church is going to survive. Now, we may say the church is growing. Sure, it's growing. But we've seen people already, at least in the Gospels, fall away, haven't we? We saw 5,000 people follow Jesus up there in Galilee, and he fed them with five loaves of bread and two small fish. And I say 5,000. It was 5,000 men 
Add to that the women and the children. But by the time you get to the crucifixion, how many people are left? A little over 100. Well, what happened to all those thousands? Well, let me tell you what happened to them. They fell away. They took offense at what Jesus was teaching, and they fell away. So the fact that the church was growing at this point, there was no guarantee that it was going to remain like that. And furthermore, there was a great deal of persecution and opposition that was coming against the life of the church. We've already seen that in the life of the apostles. Peter and John and the others had already been dragged before the Sanhedrin and ordered what? Not to preach anymore in that name. So there was a very good chance that the Romans and the Jewish religious leaders would try to stamp out the church. So what's the Lord trying to do? He is trying to preserve the church and preserve it in holiness. Because if the church is no different than anybody else, what's its function? What's its purpose? Keep your finger here in Acts chapter 5 for just a minute and flip back again to Acts chapter 2 to what we said was a model church. Because I want you to notice something here. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and following. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The part I want you to notice is that the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. But how was that happening? It was not the result of mission work. The church was doing nothing of what we would call mission work at that point in its life. Now, I was meeting with a group yesterday, and I, I drew a distinction between the terms mission and outreach. They are not necessarily the same thing. Now, so for the sake of clarity, what is mission? Mission is the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Jesus' last words to his disciples were what? Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. That is mission work. Mission is when you go out with the express purpose of evangelizing. What is outreach? Outreach is what we would call acts of generosity done in the name of Christ. But they are not necessarily aimed at conversion. Now, an opportunity may arise... But it's more reactive than it is proactive. And you're going to see when we get to Acts chapter 13, the church becomes proactive, targeting areas where the gospel has never been preached and taking the message there. But at this point, they're simply living out the Christian vocation. They're not going out and trying to preach the gospel and convert people. They are simply living generously with one another. And in so doing, they are provoking the secular culture to jealousy. In an age when there were no charities, no homes for orphans, no homes for widows, no public education, they see these Christians loving one another and sacrificing for one another. And if you are in dire straits and you see a group of people doing that and caring for one another, you're saying to yourself, I want to be a part of that. Whatever they've got, I want it. And that's why the Lord was adding to their number daily. Because people were coming to them. They weren't going to them. People were coming to them and saying, what is this? What is this new thing that is happening? So I want you to notice, there's no mission work taking place at this point really in the life of the church. They're sharing the faith as we saw with Paul and, and, and his companion, or rather Peter and John going up to the temple. They're sharing the faith only as opportunities present themselves. So the church is a remarkable church, and it is growing, but it is not growing as a result of mission work. So this is a very tender time in the life of the church. It may survive, it may not. It's in its infancy. Now, a healthy baby can be born, but can that baby survive on its own? How many of you have ever had children? Do they survive on their own? All the things that you have to do, particularly in the infancy, to care for that child to make sure that that child survives and grows strong. You have to protect that child because it cannot what? Protect itself. 
Well, that is what God is doing here in the early days of the church. This is the new Israel. But it's in its infancy. And any number of things could blight its survival and its growth. And so what God is going to do is he is going to take extreme measures, as any parent would do with a child, to protect his child, to protect his spiritual investment, which means there is no room for compromise. There's no room in these early days for any kind of compromise. There's no way that you can look the other way. It's like saying, well, I've been diagnosed with cancer, but it's only in my small toe on my left foot. So I'm not going to worry about it because, you know, it's not something that's in any vital organ. But, you know, one of the tricky things about cancer is that it doesn't just stay there, does it? It has a tendency that if it is not dealt with, it spreads. And so if God gives strict instructions about lying, and the early church looks the other way when people lie over whatever it may be. You know, we have a tendency to think, well, it's just a little white lie. Let me tell you something. There's no such thing. What does the scripture say? The wages of sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. Does the scripture say the wages of big sin is death? The wages of little sin, death. He said the wages of sin, Paul wrote, is death. So any sin, we, we need to understand that, any sin. Because what is sin at its heart? It's the desire to be in control. It's the desire to be God. It is not to live by anybody else's rules but our own. So when God says, thou shalt not lie, and we say, yes, but, what are we saying? I'm going to live by my own rules. And we all know this from experience. One lie generally leads to another, doesn't it? Oh, what a tangled web we weave when we practice to deceive. One small sin generally leads to another. Let me ask you a question. How rotten is rotten meat? Just a little bit rot? If I gave you some rotten meat, how much of it would you be willing to eat? Some years ago, there was um, some vichyssoise soup, cans of vichyssoise soup that appeared in grocery stores. And um, they were found to be contaminated with botulism. Now, if you know anything about botulism, you know it is extremely deadly. How much botulism would have to be in that soup before you would refuse to eat it? Anybody? How much botulism has to be in the soup before it's regarded as contaminated? The same thing is true for sin, you see. Even the smallest amount poisons and kills. It kills spiritually, it kills morally, and ultimately the consequences of our physical death as well. And so when we say, well, the punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime, ah, but it does. Especially in these early days of the church, there was no room for compromise. So that's the first thing I want you to notice going on here, is that God takes the issue of sin seriously. Corporate sin and individual sin. I know I've shared this with some of you before, one of my favorite books I commend it to you if you can find it on Amazon. I think it's out of print now. It's called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And uh, it was written by a man named Cornelius Plantinga, who was for years a professor at Calvin College. And um, it's called A Brevery. The subtitle was A Brevery of Sin. And in the opening chapter of that book, he has this very powerful illustration, and, and he makes his point very well. He says, there used to be a time in Western culture, and in America in particular, he said, when the idea of sin was taken seriously. He said there was a time when Protestants would rise up to say the general confession. Now, one of the things that I just had to fill out for the diocese was uh, an interview, uh, a survey, one of these survey monkeys that you have to take out, because as we're thinking about moving into ACNA, the Anglican Church in North America, 
they were doing a liturgical survey of the clergy. And one of the questions they asked was, is a confession of sin essential for a worship service? Now, first of all, I was shocked that they had to even ask the question. Second of all, I was shocked by the results that a good portion of our clergy did not feel that a confession of sin was essential to worship services. Well, Plantinga said there was a time when Protestants would rise up to say the general confession. There was a time when, Protestants, when Catholics would line up to make their confession to the priests. He said there was a time when a man who lost his temper at the breakfast table might wonder whether he should still go to Holy Communion that Sunday. There was a time when a woman who envied her more attractive and intelligent sister might worry if that threatened her very salvation. He says, but alas, the shadow has now dimmed. And he says, the accusation, you have sinned, is more often than not said with a wink or in a tone that signals an inside joke. You old sinner. Some years ago, I was at the Outback Steakhouse, and uh, I'm a sucker for desserts. Uh, I try to resist temptation, but the spirit is willing, but the flesh is often weak. And I was looking at the dessert menu, and the dessert was the Sydney's sinful Sunday. It was so good, it was what? It was sinful. Isn't that what we think? How can it be wrong when it feels so right? That's the way we look at sin. But we need to understand that according to the Bible, sin is worthy of death, the smallest sin. And the smallest sin nailed Jesus Christ to the cross. So when we say that God's punishment here in Acts chapter 5 seems rather extreme, it's not extreme at all, because sin is a cancer. It will eat away at the life of an individual and the life of the church, and God takes it very, very seriously. We get an illuminating contrast here uh, between this person Barnabas and this person Ananias. And again, as I said earlier, it is a reminder to us that there is no perfect church. That does not mean that Barnabas was a perfect person. We're going to see that he and Paul would eventually be sent off on the first missionary journey when we get to Acts chapter 13. And Paul and Barnabas would have a disagreement and part company. So not even Barnabas was a perfect person. But in this case, what we see here are these two people in the same church side by side. Jesus has a very powerful parable about this. It's the parable of what I call the visible and the invisible church. The New Testament describes it as the wheat and the tares. And the story goes that there was a man who had a field, and his enemy went out and he sowed weeds among the wheat. You know the parable? And his servants come in and they ask him, they said, we've heard that, our, that your enemy has sowed weeds among your wheat. Should we go up and tear up the weeds? And the master of the house says, no, don't do that. Because if you do, you won't be able to tell the difference. When they are young, you cannot tell the difference between the weeds and the wheat. He said, you will end up tearing up the wheat as you try to tear up the weeds. He says, let them grow up together. And when it comes time for harvest, you will be able to tell the difference between the two. That's the distinction between the visible and the invisible church. In every congregation, every congregation, and this is one of the things that as you get to know me better, you will notice about my preaching. I always go for the sale. I always go for the sale. I never presume that everybody who is going to church is necessarily a believer. There's no guarantee of that. They may be a part of the visible church, but the scripture is very clear, within that visible church, there is an invisible church. Those who are truly a part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But you could never assume that just because somebody shows up that their motivation is pure. You don't know why they're in church. Maybe it's force of habit. Maybe it's just something that they've always done their whole lives. Now, how do I know who's who? I don't. Now, Jesus talks about you'll know them by their fruits. That's true. No one picks brambles from a fig bush. But oftentimes we don't know. 
And so we have to recognize that right there, in the same church where there's a Barnabas, there's an Ananias and Sapphira. And more often than not, when we think that we're more Barnabas, we're probably more Ananias. So we have to be careful in our own lives. So I think that's one of the reasons why this story is being given to us. Now, I want you to take a look at Peter's reply. Uh, when Ananias comes in and lays this money at the apostles' feet, what does Peter say to him? Uh, earlier, we made the comment that some have argued that the early church was a great example of communism. That the early church were told that nobody had anything that they considered their own, uh, and they sold their property and distributed to everyone as, as need. And somebody said, that's a perfect example of communism. That's what the early church was. And I pointed out to you when we were looking at Acts chapter 2, that's not the case at all. This is not communism. Others have argued, well, it's socialism. Well, it's not socialism either. What's communism? Communism is a system in which the government says nobody has a right to own everything, anything. The government owns it all and distributes it. Socialism is a system in which basically the government says you have a right to own, but we'll tell you how much you have a right to own. Believe it or not, there's more socialism in America today than you'd like to admit. <laughs> we have social security. <laughs> we have socialized medicine. We have all kinds of things these days. There's a great deal of socialism in the American system. But what's interesting is the picture we get in the chapter, Acts chapter 2 is not communism or socialism. Why? Because it's a sharing, but it's not a forced sharing. Nobody's forcing them to share. And I emphasize that because Peter makes that point here. It wasn't a case where Ananias had to share everything that he had. The reality is he didn't have to share anything. His sin was not that he held back. Look again. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. Peter emphasizes that the problem here was not that he held back a portion of the proceeds. The problem was that he had what? Lied about it. Lied about it. And we know that's the case because if you go down to verse 7, you see that Peter challenges Sapphira on this very point. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? The problem here is not that they held back a portion of the land. What has Peter said? Verse 4. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. There was the problem. They didn't have to sell the property and give it to the church. They had every right, once they sold the property, to keep a portion of it for themselves. What they did not have a right to do was to lie to lie, and they weren't just lying, notice this, to the church. They weren't just lying to Peter and the apostles. They were lying to who? God. Think about that opening colic, the colic for purity in our liturgy every Sunday. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom what? No secrets are hid. I don't know about you, but every time I pray that, shivers go up my spine. There is a sense in which that's pretty shocking, isn't it? How many of you have secrets? Let's see a show of hands. How many of you have secrets? We all have secrets. We all have secrets, and we all have skeletons in the closet that we don't want anybody to know about. We all have desires and thoughts that even those closest to us, we don't want to tell them about it. Why don't we want to tell them about it? Because we are fearful if they really knew what we're really thinking, 
they might think what? Less of us. So that call for purity does send shivers up our spine, but the other side of it is that it is a great comfort as well. Because what it means is that God knows every impure, unclean thought you've ever had, and He loves you in spite of it. What mercy and what grace there is in that. To be fully known and to be fully loved. To be fully known and to be fully loved. Why do you think it was that in the days of Jane Austen they wore those umpire waists? They flattered, didn't they? They hid all of those parts that we didn't want to be revealed. Well, I think there is a sense in which so many of us do that as well. There was a right to ownership, but the problem was that they did not have a right to lie. Now, whenever we're caught in a lie, what do we normally do? How many of us, when we're caught in a lie, generally say, yep, you're right, I'm wrong? What do most of us do when we're caught in a lie? We tend to make excuses, don't we? And we tend to give extenuating circumstances as to why this has happened in our lives. What's the old Flip Wilson line? The devil made me do it. It's nothing new. It goes back to Genesis. Adam, what is it that you have done? The woman thou gavest me. Eve, what is it that you have done? The serpent beguiled me. See, it's passing the buck. I'm not responsible for my own actions. I'm passing the buck. Well, let me tell you, folks, when we lie, nobody made us do it, particularly the devil. Now, you can look at those references yourself, 1 Peter chapter 5, Luke chapter 22, John 13. But one thing is very clear, and what is very clear is this. The devil is a tempter, but he doesn't make anybody do anything. He prowls about, Peter says, like a raging lion seeking someone to devour but he doesn't force anybody to do anything. Now, some people might object to this and say, well, that's not necessarily true. Uh, take a look at John chapter 13 for just a minute. John chapter 13. Here's a, here's a powerful illustration of this. It's the Last Supper. Jesus has already prophesied that one at that table was going to betray him. Verse 21, And after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, John, was reclining at the table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus whom he was speak, of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. And Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, you say, well, the devil made Judas do it. No, that's not what the Scripture teaches. Judas had already contrived. When he took that morsel of bread, he stepped over the line. What's the line? Well, in the airline industry, if you've ever flown a plane across the Atlantic Ocean, you reach a point which they call the point of no return. Once you cross that point, you cannot go back to your point of origin. You don't have enough fuel to make it back. The only thing you can do is what? Go on. Now, will you have enough to make it to your destination? No guarantee. But the reality is, once you cross that point of no return, you can't go back. Judas crossed that point of no return. He contrived to betray the Lord. And once he had done that, and only once he had done that, the devil entered him. But it wasn't a case in which he was forced into this. He acted of his own 
free choice. Now, I say free choice because there's a distinction. We don't have time to go into it today. There's a distinction between free choice and free will. Not a single one of us has free will, but we all have free choice. Uh, Thomas Cranmer put it well. He says, whatever the heart desires, the will chooses and the mind justifies. Think about that. Whatever the heart desires, the will chooses and the mind justifies. Well, that was the case here. Judas had a desire to betray the Lord. The will chose that. And then the mind would justify it. And that's what was happening here. So the devil doesn't make us do it. We act of our own free will. We have a sin nature. It desires to do evil. Then we do it. We choose to do it freely. Nobody holds a gun to our head. But then when we are caught, we so often try to what? Justify it by blaming it on somebody else. But there is no way to blame it on anybody else. It is actually possible by the grace of God to resist the devil. Isn't that what James says? He says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, notice the order. Submit yourselves to God. Then you can resist the devil, and then he will flee from you. Don't try to resist the devil first because you're incapable of doing it. But submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So Ananias and Sapphira could have resisted the temptation to lie. But they didn't. Another thing to bear in mind, again, and we've already talked about that, is that sin, and Peter makes this very clear, you have not lied to man, you have lied to God. Every sin that you and I commit is ultimately against God. Its implications, its ramifications may affect other people. But all sin is ultimately against God and against His law. David makes that point very clear in Psalm 51. He says, against you and you only, O Lord, have I sinned. Now, what's so remarkable about that in Psalm 51 is that if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that Psalm 51 is David's confession of sin after he had done what? Two things. He'd had an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, and then, in order to cover it up, he did what? He had her husband killed, Uriah. That's right. And he thought he got away with it. And then he's confronted by the prophet Nathan. And Nathan tells this wonderful story about a wealthy man and a poor man, a poor man who had nothing, a wealthy man who had everything he could desire. Uh, the poor man had nothing but a little lamb that was like a child to him that used to sit at his table and, and sit in his lap. And he said, and the wealthy man, in order to have a party for his friends, instead of using one of his own flock, stole this little lamb from this poor man who saw it as a child, as, 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 a, as a pet. And he took that little lamb and he slaughtered it and fed it to his friends. And Nathan's telling this story to the king. And the king says, well, whoever that man is, he deserves to die for this injustice. And Nathan looks at him and he says, that man is you. You're that man. That's what you have done. You've stolen another man's wife when you had a whole harem of your own. And we're told that David repents in sackcloth and ashes. And he confesses this sin. But in Psalm 51, he says, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. Well, you might think, well, he sinned against Bathsheba, didn't he? He sinned against his wife. He sinned against Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. He sinned against all these people. But David understood that ultimately, while the implications were sins against everybody else, ultimately it was a sin against God and God's law. Because he sets the standard. We must never forget that, my friends. Sin is a serious business. It can be forgiven, but we have to understand how serious it is. If we do not see the serious nature, the gravity of sin in our own lives, we will never, never understand the value and the significance and the wonder of a Savior like Jesus Christ. You'll never understand that. That's why I, I love amazing grace. I love to say, saved a wretch like me because... When I look at my own sin, it's not just what we do, it's what we think. It's what's going on in our minds, in our hearts, it's what motivates us. When you realize how corrupt we really are and you realize that God loves you anyway, what a marvelous thing that is. But sin is always a serious matter 
There's no such thing as a little white lie. There's no such thing as a small sin. All sin is great. All sin is deserving of death. And all sin is ultimately against God. And we see that, of course, when we turn now to Sapphira. What was her sin? Well, in those days, the husband had complete control over the property. But you'll notice that she was brought in on this. We would call her a collaborator. She's complicit. She hasn't actually sold the property herself. Only her husband could do that. But she does it with full knowledge. This is a reminder to us that if we know that sin is taking place and we give approval to it, even if we don't take part in it, we're guilty. We're going to find later on in the book of Acts, not too many chapters hence, that they stoned one of the early deacons of the church. His name was Stephen. And we're told the people were whipped into a frenzy. They took off their cloaks and they began to pummel this early Christian. The first Christian martyr was stones. And the scripture says they laid their clothes at the feet of a man named what? Saul. Now, who was Saul? It was Paul prior to his conversion. That's right. Now, what you'll notice is that Saul did not participate in the action. He never picked up a stone. I'll just watch your cloaks. Was he innocent? Pontius Pilate. Jesus is brought before trial before Pontius Pilate. Pilate goes in, he examines Jesus, he comes out and he says, I find no fault with this man. That is to say, he's not broken any Roman laws. Take him and try him for yourself. We have a law and this man should die, the Jews said. Pilate goes back in and he examines Jesus. He comes back out. I find no fault with the man. And then he goes to the trouble of doing what? Washing his hands. Have you ever heard the expression, I'm washing my hands of the situation? This is where it comes. I'm washing my hands of the situation. As though Pilate was then innocent. Was he innocent? He wasn't innocent. What's the old Good Friday hymn say? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they nailed him to the tree? Were you there when they pierced him in the sky side? How many of you were there? Every single one of us was there. And we do it again and again and again. One of the great hymns in the church, it's not in the 1940 hymnal, but it's written by a professor, Walter Russell Bowie at Virginia Seminary, my old alma mater. And it goes, Lord Christ, when first thou camest to earth, upon a cross they bound thee and mocked thy saving kingship then with thorns with which they crowned thee. And still our wrongs do weave thee now new thorns to pierce that steady brow and robe of sorrow place round thee. And still our wrongs weave him now new thorns to pierce that steady brow. Every time you and I sin, every time we violate the commandments of God, we drive the nails once again into Jesus' hands. We plait that crown of thorns and we pierce his steady brow. That's what the story of Ananias and Sapphira teaches us. And there's no excuse for it. I was going to read you something from C.S. Lewis, but there's no time for that. But let me just finish out today by talking about the consequences of sin. John Donne, famous poet and dean of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, once said in one of his holy sonnets, no man is an island unto himself. We are all part of the main. That is to say, the things that I do don't just affect me. They affect other people as well. That's one of the reasons why, folks, it's important to have the passing of the peace in church. Now, I know it's not always been the tradition here at St. Philip's, but let me tell you why it's important. And why it's important where it takes place in the liturgy. In order to come to communion and have peace with God, we must first have peace with one another. So look at the order in the liturgy. The first thing that happens is 
the confession of sin. And you confess your sin to God. But we recognize that our sin not only affects us in our relationship with God, it affects our relationship with others, doesn't it? What's the first thing that happened in Eden? Adam ate of the tree. Did Eve force him to do it? No. Did the serpent force him to do it? No. But when he was called to account, what did he do? He blamed somebody else. Did his sin affect his relationship with other people? You better believe it. And we see a downhill spiral from there on out, don't we? We see that the first children they have, Cain and Abel, what happens? Cain kills Abel. And the situation gets worse and worse and worse. One sin compounded upon another until you get to the point of the story of the earth at the time of Noah's flood. And we're told that God looked upon the evil of man and he saw that the desires of men's heart was only evil all the time. That's how bad it gets, you see. So it's a serious matter and it affects other people. And that's what John Dunn is saying. He's saying your sins will inevitably affect your lives with other people. So we have the confession of sin in the liturgy. And once we have peace with God, that means we can have peace with one another. That's why we pass the peace. It represents the fact that now that we have peace with God, we can have peace with each other. And if we have peace with each other and peace with God, then we can go to communion and drink that blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for us and eat that bread of heaven. But it's only once we have confessed our sins and it's only once we have peace with one another. So all of this in the liturgy is representative of what is being taught here in the scriptures. What we can see here, that the sin of Ananias and Sapphira didn't affect them only. What happened as a result of their being struck down? Fear filled the whole church. How many people do you think were willing to join at that point? Up to that point, the Lord had been adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, if you know that you come in and you lie to God, you're going to be struck dead. How many of you are going to be eager to join that congregation on Sunday? Do you think that that had an adverse effect on the ministry and the life of the church in those early days? You better believe it. And yet, if God had left it go unchecked, what would it have said? It would have said that it's okay to lie. In what circumstances? Well, it depends. That's where we are in our culture today, isn't it? We have reached a point in our culture where there is no such thing as absolute truth. Truth is now a subjective category. You have your truth, I have my truth. You have your version of right and wrong, I have my version of right and wrong. And there's nothing but moral chaos in the culture. That's what happens. And God loved the church too much in these early days to let that happen. So bear in mind, my friends, that there's no such thing as a perfect church. And there's always that division that exists between the visible and the invisible church. But God is concerned that his people be a holy people. To be holy means to be set apart. Doesn't mean we're perfect, but when we're imperfect, the thing to do is to acknowledge our sin and to come before him begging his grace and mercy and finding pardon and peace. That we may come back together again and bear witness to his power and to his love. So it's kind of a downer today, Ananias and Sapphira, but it's an important lesson for us to remember what it takes to keep the church pure, what it takes for us as Christian people to acknowledge our sin, to confess our sin, and to seek God's grace and mercy and not make excuses. There's no excuse. There's no excuse for sin ever. But there is an answer for it. And that's what the cross is all about. When we get back together again um, next week, we will take a look at the church in the wake of these events and the remarkable things that God does. Um, you would think that this would be a real time and there was a period in which things sort of leveled out, but all of a sudden, because God had taken dramatic action, the people renewed their allegiance to the Lord 
and all of a sudden we see the church doing great things again. Every period of great renewal in the life of the church, and, and by the way, I will say this much, the miracle of Christianity is not renewal. We all talk about renewal. The miracle of Christianity is resurrection. It's life out of death. But every great period in which there's been revival in the life of the church, every time, whether it's the Great Awakening in New England or the Second Great Awakening in New England or any period in the life of the church, one of the things that you will notice is that it's always, always preceded by a period of repentance. How many of you would like to see revival at St. Philip's Church? There's a few St. Michaelites here. How many of you would like to see it at St. Michael's as well? <laughs> if you want to see that, let me give you a little bit of advice. Get on your knees and repent. I want to see revival at St. Philip's. So before I even came in here today, I got on my knees and I repented. I confessed my sins and I begged for mercy. Now I prayed that God would give me the words to speak today, but I realized that what I needed more than anything else was to repent of my own sins. If we want to see revival here, don't put the burden on the preacher. I guarantee you he will fall off the pedestal that you put him on. Confess your sins. Acknowledge them. And if you don't think you're really a sinner, ask the Lord to reveal your sin to you. And I promise you, He will answer that prayer. And then confess it. Seek His pardon and His grace. Be reconciled one to another. And the Lord will do for us what He did for them. He will add to our number daily those who are being saved. And we will turn the city of Charleston and the world upside down. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet. It is a light unto our path. Grant us the grace to see the sin in our own lives. It's so easy to see the sin in the lives of others. But to overlook our own sin and to make excuse, to always say they're extenuating circumstances, but the reality is sin is a serious matter. There is no excuse. So grant us the grace to see this, to pull back the curtain and to see ourselves for what we really are, and then seek the solace and the grace of your cross, that we may be a new people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, thank you. Yes, you may.